Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks so much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. In just a moment, my guest today is Dr. Dave Chokshi, the outgoing commissioner of the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Dr. Chakshi has been the city's health commissioner or the city's doctor, as he and others sometimes say, since August 2020, taking over the department at what was something of an upswing period after the worst of the first COVID-19 outbreak in the city, but also still a very perilous time for the city amid the COVID-19 pandemic that obviously continues to stretch on. Dr. Chakshi, most recently before becoming health commissioner in the city, was chief population health officer at the New York City Health and Hospitals, where he built and grew an award-winning team dedicated to health system improvement and other aspects of the healthcare system, according to his profile on the New York City Department of Health website. Prior to that work, uh, Dr. Chakshi has been in the New York City and State Departments of Health and also the Louisiana Department of Health, among other points of service he's had. So my conversation in just a minute, an exit interview of sorts with Dr. Dave Chakshi, the outgoing commissioner of the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. First, just briefly, if you've missed any recent episodes of the podcast, you can find them all wherever you get podcasts, or we have them all at the Gotham Gazette website. And at that website, you can also, of course, find all of our recent reporting, the guest opinion columns we publish, and much more. Recently on the podcast, just a few quick highlights. We've uh, hosted Joanne Yu of the Asian American Federation to talk about the disturbing rise in hate crimes and violence against Asian American New Yorkers and what government should do about it. We've spoken recently with New York City Comptroller Brad Lander about the city budget, nonprofit contracting, and much more. We've spoken with James Merriman, the CEO of the New York City Charter School Center about where things stand with charter schools in New York City and a variety of other really interesting conversations, including several with new city council members who are chairing interesting committees, including the Committee on Health, the Committee on Hospitals, the Committee on Mental Health, the Committee on Sanitation and Waste Management, and a lot of really good and interesting conversations. So again, find any or all of those at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts, or at the Gotham Gazette website. All right, Dr. Dave Chakshi, thank you so much for taking the time. We are talking here on Wednesday, March 9th. Always important to give people that context because when they uh, might be listening to the show, uh, things change quickly, especially during COVID-19. So we're talking here on Wednesday, March 9th, 2022, uh, a little bit after you testified at a city council budget hearing. So thanks for making time for this on the same day as that. Um, and a lot I want to try to get to with you, but um, thank you very much for, for taking the time. Of course, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks, Ben, for having me. So let's um, let's start where you were when you took over as health commissioner for the city. Um, I want to talk about some of the most recent decisions around uh, COVID-19 uh, precautions and protections and, and rolling back some of the, the mandates and so forth. But, but let's zoom way out for a moment first how were you thinking about the job of New York City Health Commissioner when you took over in August 2020? As I said, um, it was after that first horrifying, devastating, awful uh, first wave of the pandemic, but we were clearly nowhere near out of uh, COVID-19. 
You're also taking over at a, a very tricky sort of political and intergovernmental time. There was a lot of challenges uh, sort of between and among City Hall and the health department and health and hospitals and the police department and a variety of other things. Uh, just take us back to your mindset taking over the health department at that time. I'm sure. Well, yes, it was a very charged time uh, and a difficult one. Uh, you know, a lot, a lot of people um, uh, asked if I were uh, crazy to, you know, to take the role uh, at the time that I did. Um, but really, you know, when I, I got the call um, asking me to serve, uh, it was an easy decision um, because of uh, because of what I had experienced, what all of New York City had experienced, you know, in spring of that year, um, that devastating first wave. Uh, you know, I was part of the uh, the public hospital system at that time, as you noted, um, and you know, the the suffering, the ways in which um, we came under strain, uh, those were very fresh in my memory, and so um, you know, so to. Uh, to say no to try to uh, serve and prevent as much of that suffering as possible, um, you know, it was an easy choice for me to make. Um, when, I, when I started in August of 2020, you know, I tried to uh, give some clear strategic priorities. Um, first, by saying that all of the health department's work, you know, flowed through an effective COVID-19 response. Uh, and then three specific elements of uh, our COVID response. First was, you know, to anticipate and try to uh, prevent um, as much suffering as possible uh, if we were to enter into another wave. And as we now know, there would be three subsequent waves, you know, thus far uh, since August of 2020. The second was to plan and prepare for, um, you know, our historic COVID-19 vaccination campaign. And then the third was also to address all of what we call the parallel pandemics, you know, things like mental health and structural racism and the overdose crisis, uh, which in many cases were exacerbated by COVID-19. Interesting. And were you, were, are, are you the youngest uh, health commissioner in the, in the city's history, or at least its modern history? Uh, I'm not sure about that. I can't say that I've looked into the archives on that one. I do know, and I wear with pride that I'm the first health commissioner of Asian descent. Yes, yes. Um, one of the things that was part of that conflict I mentioned before you took over was the decision that the mayor and, and health leadership in the city made to do um, the, the test and trace uh, protocols and program led by health and hospitals and taken out of the health department. In retrospect, um, and, and you've obviously spanned both those, uh, both those entities, those city entities, um, in retrospect, was, was that the right move? Uh, did, did that wind up having a significant impact one way or the other? Was the city just so overwhelmed by COVID cases that test and trace didn't really matter that much? Um, well, look, uh, you know, health and hospitals and um, the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene are two institutions that I love dearly. Um, and I just think about this from the perspective of, you know, an everyday New Yorker, one of my patients that I take care of. Um, frankly, they don't care about the bureaucratic distinctions between, you know, two aspects of city government. What they want to know is that their city is working on their behalf. Um, from the health perspective, doing the things that matter to help 
keep us healthy. And then in the event that we need care when we're ill, uh, that they have a place to turn to. And the rest of it is our job to sort out, you know, as much uh, behind the scenes as possible. That was a philosophy that I brought, you know, to the role when I started. Um, and I think we were able to do that successfully, you know, test and trace um, stayed under uh, the health and hospitals banner, but we worked extraordinarily closely, you know, hand in hand with them on uh, not just testing and contact tracing, uh, but also our vaccination campaign. Um, and reciprocally, you know, the, uh, the health and hospitals team relied on uh, a lot of what we did to organize the vaccine infrastructure across New York City. So um, that's the type of partnership that New Yorkers deserve. And, uh, you know, in, in um, hindsight, I think we were able to accomplish that. I felt given the scale of COVID-19 at the time that the rationale around having it be led and, and sort of based in, in health and hospitals made a lot of sense, but it also came at this time of this conflict uh, with your predecessor and, you know, just so much tension around uh, so much related to the first first wave of COVID-19 that um, and of course, the historical nature of, of test and trace and, and disease detectives at the, the city health department. But but the rationale made sense as long as what you just said was the case, that the, the two entities worked really closely together. And I think that was the big concern at, at the time. But you feel like that that went as about as smoothly as it could have? Um, I believe so. But, you know, the proof is in the pudding with respect mm -hmm. to what we were actually able to accomplish. Um, and, you know, we, we can point to the vaccination campaign, 17 million doses administered, uh, you know, 77% of the full uh, of the entire population of New York City fully vaccinated. Um, and, you know, we estimate 48,000 lives saved and over 300,000 hospitalizations averted. All of that uh, is because of, you know, the partnership that we were able to forge. Um, and I also don't want to make it sound like it was just health and hospitals and and um, the health department. This was truly a whole of government effort. Um, a lot of colleagues in City Hall, other agencies from emergency management, you know, to uh, to sanitation, to others, um, really uh, doing their part, you know, for what um, what 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 is a what I hope will be a once in a lifetime pandemic, you know, a disaster that required uh, resources and a commitment um, of that scale. I'm glad you brought up the vaccination rate because I wanted to to go there next. Um, uh, according to health health department data, it's 77.1 percent fully vaccinated in the city of of the of the total population. Obviously, under five, not eligible yet. Um, there there's some pretty big gaps within those numbers. Uh, there are there are certain uh, uh, demographic groups, black New Yorkers, uh, the oldest New Yorkers, those young children more recently eligible, though eligible for a while now, um, and, and other groups, even a lot of white New Yorkers as well. I mean, the, 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 of the four sort of big racial ethnic groups, um, Asian New Yorkers and, and Hispanic New Yorkers are far outpacing black and white New Yorkers. Um, what's the, what's the, key here in your in your estimation to getting those numbers much closer to 100 percent are there are there a couple of key steps for the future of the vaccination program to get from 77 to as close to 100 as possible 
Well, first I'll say you're absolutely right to point this out. You know, even as um, we can point to the success of the vaccination campaign as a whole, we still do have work to do in uh, redressing the inequities that you're pointing out and, you know, closing the gaps uh, for certain um, age groups, uh, you know, beyond race and ethnicity as well. Um, you know, our overall approach was uh, organized around the idea that um, it's age, race, and place that really matter, you know, for us to, um, to stay abreast of the data and understand where we needed to do more. Um, you know, I'll say there are some things that we've learned over the course of the campaign uh, that we just need to have the discipline to uh, continue and double down on. Um, lowering barriers to access, uh, you know, for example, we have an in-home vaccination program that was very successful in reaching uh, older New Yorkers and homebound New Yorkers. Um, a lot of investment in community-based organizations, you know, over $125 million flowed to the institutions that know their neighborhoods the best, you know, that are often more trusted than government, frankly, in communities. Um, as well as faith leaders, you know, and other uh, people in neighborhoods. Uh, so that's that's all, you know, things that we need to continue. Um, but your question is about, well, what more needs to be done? And there are a couple of things that I'll point to there. One is that we have to recognize that, um, you know, for people who remain unvaccinated right now, uh, a, a significant proportion of it stems from misinformation. Um, and so having an appropriately uh, aggressive approach to um, taking on misinformation, uh, trying to root it out, um, and also addressing, you know, some of the fundamental reasons why misinformation takes root in the first place um, has to do with trust in government, you know, trust in other institutions, and being willing as a as a city and as a health department to actually address those issues as well. And then the second thing that I'll point to is, is our vaccine policies, which as you know, were quite controversial, but also quite effective. And, um, you know, I hope we do continue to emerge from the pandemic, um, but uh, if we find ourselves in a situation where we need to achieve still higher rates of vaccination, or we need to get, you know, booster rates higher than they are right now, we have to remember to reach for those uh, policies uh, because they have also been effective. Mm -hmm. And and right now, what's considered fully vaccinated is not including a booster. Is that correct? That's correct. Fully right. vaccinated. And there's, yeah, that's right. And, and and so and there's a lot of discussion that that definition may need to change. What is your uh, assessment of that at this point? It, it it obviously would undermine sort of the numbers here, and and you know, looking like. Uh, you know, a, a higher percentage of the of the city population is is fully vaccinated than not. Obviously, that would that would put a, a big hit in the sort of data and the success story being told. But the, are we at a point where the science is saying a booster should really be the what's considered fully vaccinated? Um, well, we do know that full vaccination confers good protection, you know, particularly against severe disease. Um, but we have also seen waning of immunity over time and with Omicron uh, that, um, you know, the, the booster, what we call staying up to date, um, became far more important because of the nature of that variant. So, you know, it, it is a dynamic assessment between the characteristics of the, the variant, you know, the, the virus that's in circulation uh, at a point in time. 
um, and the vaccines. And so, you know, we have to adjust as the circumstances dictate. Um, you know, I, I don't think that there should be a change in the definition of fully vaccinated at this moment. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do think that we have to talk more about and um, make sure that people understand that staying up to date, you know, having three doses of an mRNA vaccine or one of the J&J &J and one uh, additional dose, uh, that that is particularly important in the context of Omicron. As we talk about the importance of being vaccinated and up to date on the vaccination, uh, the importance of breaking through to those who've been hesitant or those who've uh, either sort of been duped by misinformation or, or whatever, uh, what, what have you, um, it, it would seem to me, and, and along with the, the sort of mission altogether of avoiding another, another wave, another surge, another variant um, taking hold, that relaxing those key to NYC vaccination uh, mandates uh, would be undermining this message that you just you just gave. Um, I, I've not yet quite heard the problem that was being solved, other than that for some businesses, it's an inconvenience to check people's vaccination cards. Um, is there a problem that the key to NYC program to require vaccination for indoor dining and entertainment venues and so forth. Was there a, was there a problem that, that rolling it back is, is solving? Well, Akita NYC unequivocally um, was successful in that it helped get more New Yorkers vaccinated. Um, and, you know, so we have to, uh, we have to point to that as part of the reason that we're at the levels of vaccination that we are right now. Um, you know, at the same time, we always have to adjust to uh, the circumstances uh, at a given point. Um, and where we are right now is at a significantly lower transmission rate than we were just a few weeks ago during Omicron uh, and, uh, and at higher you know, levels of vaccination. Uh, and so um, relaxing you know, some, not all, but relaxing some of the protections that were in place uh, was appropriate you know, to have done um, just a few days ago. We also put out, as you know, the um, uh, New York City alert levels, uh, and this was deliberately done at the same time to point a path forward, you know, a roadmap to say, if we find ourselves in a situation where uh, cases start to increase and there's impact on the healthcare system again, um, we have to reach for some of those protections again, uh, and they would have to be reconsidered. That, that new color-coded system, those alerts, uh, red, very high, hopefully we'll never experience that, uh, orange high, yellow medium, and we're currently in green low. There's a, there's a lower uh, COVID-19 community spread. Under the green uh, categorization, the, the second bullet is consider wearing a face mask in public indoor settings where vaccine status is not known. Uh, this is advice, obviously. This is helping people to calibrate their risk levels and, and their tolerance for risk and so forth. But that bullet to me jumped out right away to say, well, I, when I go indoor dining, I used to know the vaccine status, so I wouldn't even have to think about this one. And if I go indoor dining, if I'm now uncertain about the vaccine status, I can't really wear a face mask while I'm dining or, or drinking indoors. And that was part of the whole appeal of let's all be vaccinated when there's so much sharing of air and, and, and space in a public setting. Um, 
you know, I don't, I don't know that you're going to say anything different than what I've already asked you, but that bullet especially jumped out at me in terms of sort of the confusion that it might cause people saying, I am trying to enjoy the city more. I'm fully vaccinated. And I like knowing that I'm around others who are fully vaccinated and the, and the risk of transmission is, is lower. Um, does that, does that guidance not cause a little bit more tension for people? Um, I can understand that, um, but I would point out that there are still restaurants and other venues that have kept, uh, you know, checking um, vaccine status uh, part of their protocols. And I think that's completely appropriate and we support it, you know, as, as a city. Um, what's different is that that is not happening across the board, you know, for every single venue. Uh, and there is an, another important part of this dialogue to, to get to, you know, what I think is at the heart of your question which is um, part of our job uh, as uh, public officials, you know, as public health officials is to consider um, the trust of the public and um, calibrating up and down these protections, particularly requirements, you know, as the situation dictates is a part uh, from my perspective of remaining worthy of the trust of the people that we're serving. It shows that we are not being, um, you know, arbitrary in imposing requirements, uh, and it shows that we'll adjust our approach when the level of community risk is truly lower. Um, but you know, even at the lowest level, given what we know about COVID-19, which remains a deadly respiratory virus, there are still precautions, you know, that are important. Whether it's, um, you know, particularly for someone who's at higher risk, wearing high quality mask in uh, an indoor setting uh, or a restaurant or a Broadway theater deciding that they're going to keep their own, you know, mask and vaccine requirements. Um, all of those are, are appropriate, but allows for the flexibility that, um, you know, that businesses and individuals uh, are able to take more safely when the community risk is lower. Mm. Uh, one more on the recent decisions. Um, the 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 young uh, New Yorkers and and the decisions around masks. You you set the the policy at um, kindergarten and above, which mostly captures five plus. There's there's lots of uh, five year olds in in pre K, obviously turning five. But um, but you set that policy at kindergarten and above, uh, removing masks. That's the age of vaccination eligibility. But that was not tied to any vaccination levels. That was not tied to school-based vaccination levels. It wasn't tied to borough-based vaccination levels. So the fact that that five plus are eligible for the vaccine, when we've seen pretty low uptake so far in the five to twelve, especially category, I'm, I'm not quite sure I understand the rationale there for not. If if the masks are a problem, then extending that to the to the three and four year olds in city, you know, over uh, programs three K four UPK, um, it, it, is there really a difference there? Uh, and why not tie it to some sort of vaccination rate if 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 you're going to make that decision based on the eligibility threshold? Yes, thank you. That's a, that's a thoughtful question, and it's one that it was a we, little jumbled. It was a little jumbled, but I, I think you get my my point. No, I, I understand it because we um, we deliberated on exactly that. You know, in terms of the right timing and how to think about uh, how things should you know change um, depending on the different risk thresholds. 
you know, where we um, came down in terms of thinking this through was it's a combination of uh, the level of community risk, you know, which is measured by cases, as well as what we're seeing with respect to severe outcomes, particularly hospitalizations, with um, the availability of vaccination and at least a sufficient period of time for people to have availed themselves of, uh, you know, of the vaccine for um, for themselves or in this case, you know, for their children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that does matter, you know, with respect to um, the safety of uh, of being able to do these things. And remember, this is, you know, the decision that we made for K through 12 it's not masks off, it's masks optional. Um, And we do expect that many people, as we're seeing, uh, will continue to, you know, to to make use of of masks in that setting. But at the same time, you know, we've put a lot of other layers in place, including our vaccine mandate for all school staff uh, that has made that setting uh, far safer than it would be otherwise. So, so is it a little bit of a liability thing, you know, that, that, that five plus have been eligible for a little while now. So while you're not mandating the vaccine, you're not tying removal of the masks uh, at schools to any vaccination rate at a school, like I said, or a borough or, or, or across the city, but that there's a little bit of a, of the city saying, you know, parents, your kids have been eligible for a little while now. It's sort of your responsibility to to get them vaccinated, whereas we can't really um, sort of take that responsibility quite yet on the on the three and four year olds in our in our purview. Well, look, I'm a doctor, not a lawyer, so I don't, I don't think about liability. <laughs> uh-huh, I think uh-huh. about, you know the, the availability of a protective intervention yeah. and. Um, and, you know, vaccines work, as you well know, as we have seen over the course of, of uh, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and uh, we do know that, you know, parents have gotten uh, their children vaccinated safely. Uh, we're seeing, you know, very high rates among uh, 13 to 17 year olds, um, lower rates, as you're pointing out, among five to 12 year olds. Uh, but um, what we can say definitively is that it's an intervention that works. It's available uh, to people. And the fact that we've gotten the population level as high as we have, even if there's more work to be done, does mean that it's safer to take some of these steps, particularly when uh, the community risk is lower. And, and lastly on this, as you know, there's lots of parents frustrated with the masking continuing to be required in, in pre-K and, and 3K and daycares. Um, what do you say to, to the parents who say, at least make it optional for us to unmask our kids in those settings when you're, when you're letting uh, hundreds of thousands of unvaccinated uh, other kids go to school with no masks now? Yes, you know, I've, I've heard the frustration and I know there's a lot of discussion about this. Uh, the key distinction is that, um, you know, kids under five are not yet eligible for, uh, for the vaccine. Um, they don't have that layer of protection and safety available to them yet. Um, and look, we will continue to follow what the numbers and the science uh, show. Uh, and, and, you know, this is not a permanent intervention with respect to the mask mandate for, um, you know, for kids two to four. Uh, it's something that we'll continue reevaluating and figuring out when the right time is to make the same change that we did for those five and up. What do you think the time frame on that type of decision would be? 
Um, I think it's sooner rather than later, um, mm -hmm. you know, because uh, because our, our cases remain uh, relatively low. Uh, I'm hopeful that we'll hear from the FDA, you know, about um, about the vaccine for uh, for kids under five uh, also sooner rather than later. So um, so I'm optimistic. Those are those are potentially two very different sooner rather than later. Right. I mean, the a city decision on the mass for the youngest kids could be within a week or two. No, um, it could be. You know, this is something that we continue to discuss each day. Um, you know, we're taking the feedback that we're hearing uh, from community members. Uh, we're, um, you know, we're following the data, including uh, hospitalization rates to understand uh, how to calibrate this. I will say as a doctor, I have a very low tolerance for any avoidable hospitalizations of our infants and toddlers. Um, if we can prevent it, uh, we should. Uh, and so we have to be very judicious and careful and methodical uh, but, um, but yes, these are things that are being actively discussed. Is your outgoing advice to the mayor to, uh, to put in place or strongly, strongly consider putting in place a student COVID vaccination mandate for next school year? He said for a while now that that's something he is considering, um, or, or are we likely out of the woods where that that wouldn't be necessary. I mean, you know, obviously other variants, you know, could put really put so much of this at risk. And you already mentioned that, you know, that's why there's the alert levels now, even though we're in, in green. Um, but but is your thinking now that it would be smart to have a student um, add that to the suite of vaccines that students are required for school? Yeah, my opinion is that it should be very strongly considered, particularly when we have a fully licensed uh, um, COVID-19 vaccine for children. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as you've already alluded to, we have student vaccine requirements for a range of other diseases. They're part of the reason that we have been able to prevent so much suffering with other vaccine preventable diseases among children. And we have the chance to do the same thing with COVID-19. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, let's, let's zoom out uh, in, our, in our final uh, five or so minutes here let's zoom back out the the pandemic um was obviously preyed upon the most vulnerable uh the elderly uh the immunocompromised those with significant pre-existing conditions um as health commissioner part of your mission obviously so much was consumed by by COVID-19 but also is to create a healthier city uh healthier New Yorkers as you look ahead what what do you think are one or two keys to creating a, a healthier city where uh, the next generation of New Yorkers or even even, you know, current adult New Yorkers are healthier uh, writ large than uh, the current and past generations? What are a couple of keys to improving that? And obviously, we know a lot of times uh, health is very much tied to socioeconomic conditions, to poverty. Um, but what are a couple of policy keys, levers that the city should really be pulling here in the future to make sure that, you know, the quote unquote next COVID-19 isn't so deadly for people who are who are suffering from these types of vulnerabilities? Yeah, thank you. This is something that I've thought about a lot. And my my colleagues here at the health department um, have as well. 
we can't squander this opportunity that we have, you know, as we hopefully continue to emerge from COVID-19 um, and really, you know, put in place the things that we should have had uh, before uh, the pandemic hit us so hard in the spring of 2020. So there are three things that I'll point out. The first is that we need massive investment in public health. Um, this is the time uh, to do that, to uh, make sure that we have the public health workforce that we needed uh, you know, at the beginning of COVID-19. We've started that in New York City with something called the Public Health Corps. We need that in every city across the country and we need it at the right scale uh, you know, for it to have an impact. Um, the second is for us to contend with uh, the unacceptable racial inequity that we have seen during the pandemic um, and to do it in a way that recognizes that so much of what we're seeing with respect to um, the, the racial inequities and COVID-19 outcomes can be traced back to uh, structural racism and all of the ways that it manifests in our society whether it's about affordable housing or uh, better quality education or nutritious food. Um, when we look at the effects on particularly black and brown New Yorkers, um, the, uh, the, the fundamental driver is in disinvestment and discrimination um, that is the manifestation of structural racism. Uh, and then the third one, um, and this is an area where, you know, my successor, Dr. Ashwin Vasan is particularly passionate, is in making sure that we focus on behavioral health, on mental health, just as much as we do on physical health. I mentioned earlier, this is one of the, you know, what we call parallel pandemics um, associated with uh, COVID-19. And we have to just remember that the head is connected to the body uh, and so we have to, you know, make sure that we're thinking about addressing mental health with that same uh, motivation, investment, um, and uh, focus on outcomes as we are for everything related to physical health. So these are lessons that we have to have learned because of COVID-19. We have a chance to really take our work to the next level. Uh, I have a lot of confidence that um, my team, you know, this team that I've been privileged to lead at the health department, is well positioned to be able to do that. If you don't mind, can you give a couple specific examples of of within, um, uh, let's especially say categories one and two there uh, of of what of what policies that looks like? I know obviously the mayor's talking about getting a lot more healthy food uh, in all neighborhoods. That's obviously uh, one. Uh, mayor De Blasio was focused quite a bit on um, getting primary care coverage for all New Yorkers. Are there other 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 specifics like that that the city either needs to double down on or start anew? Um, yeah, great question. So yes, on the on the first one, um, you know, I, I mentioned the public health core. Um, another one is uh, something called the new family home visiting program. You know, this is uh, nurse visits to uh, first time uh, parents. Uh, which helps with both maternal and infant health, and it connects to the second priority in terms of addressing inequities as well. Um, those are the types of things where we have an evidence base that community health workers, visiting nurses, primary care, these things work. They're just not funded in a way that um, is appropriate for the scale of what we need. 
Um, and then the other thing that I'll mention on the uh, on the second front, you know, uh, particularly around uh, addressing racial inequity, is the idea that the purview of health is so broad. We have to understand um, that it's not just medicine, it's not just doctors and nurses. It's about things like looking at how the racial wealth gap affects health um, and doing things to redress the racial wealth gap. Uh, Mayor Adams, you know, as part of his uh, FY23 budget included um, more funding for the earned income tax credit, which you might not consider a public health intervention, you know, classically, but it unequivocally is because it provides cash assistance that can be used for housing, nutritious food, education, the things that really matter with respect to downstream health outcomes. So um, those are some more specifics uh, along the yeah. lines of what you're looking for. Thank you. And if we had more time, I wanted to maybe touch on, you know, specifics of, of fighting asthma and diabetes and, and, and many other things, but we don't have time uh, to get into that level of specificity right now. Um, last couple of questions. Are you're you're on duty until March 15th or are these your last couple of days? Are you are you done on Friday? What, what when's your last day with the city? March 14th is my last day. 14th. OK, so, you, so you're you're in you're in your last week here. I'm sure I'm sure that's uh, challenging in a number of ways. Bittersweet, of course. Um, I'm wondering if you could sort of uh, give listeners just, you know, take us a little bit behind the curtain in our last couple of minutes here. Um, as a as a doctor, uh, but also as a health professional hired by polit politicians, elected officials, there's a real conflict there. Obviously, you're you're making policy that is determined by those elected officials. What what's that like? How how hard is that as a doctor? It's obviously an incredible opportunity to shape that policy. But how hard is it as a doctor to also have to work in a political atmosphere? Um, yeah, I mean, there are some difficulties, certainly. It's different than taking care of patients um, in the clinic where, uh, you know, I'm the, um, well, the patient is the ultimate decision maker, but, you know, we, we work things out together. Um, but I'll also say that I reject the notion that politics and public health are uh, completely separate um, because health has always been political. Um, you know, who lives and who dies, who suffers and who flourishes. These are all always things over, you know, the long arc of history that have been shaped by political forces. And so, you know, we've seen this in very tangible and visceral ways, you know, over the course of the pandemic, but it was always true. Uh, and so my take is um, as, a, as a doctor who had the privilege of serving as the health commissioner, you have the chance to shape that um, and to shape it in a way that is consonant with the values uh, that you hold most dearly and serving the people whom you care for most dearly, particularly people who are marginalized, uh, people who are vulnerable you know, to illness for one reason or another. Uh, and so from my perspective, that is something, yes, to make sure that you hold fast to your own values, but also that you embrace the effect, you know, the impact that you're able to have. Uh, last couple short answer uh, uh, questions. Was there something that you wanted to do over the last two years that you uh, 
we're told no on by the powers that be that that are still sort of something that you really hope New York City does at some point? Was there something you wanted to do, whether on COVID or something else, that is a, a, a dream public health policy that you want to see implemented? Um, well, I wasn't told no, actually. I was supported by both mayors on uh, some work around global vaccine equity that I care deeply about, but I do wish that we could have done more, particularly as New York City. We're one of the most interconnected places in the, in the entire world. You know, We saw how what happens in the rest of the world affects us and our population, um, and so I do wish that we could have done even more to take on the challenges and confront uh, the deep and glaring inequities in vaccine access globally uh, mm. and, and lent our voice even more strongly. What was one thing as health commissioner you got really wrong? Um, well, look, the, the fact that um, black New Yorkers were hospitalized at twice the rate that white New Yorkers were during the Omicron wave, that happened on my watch. Um, and that's something that, uh, uh, you know, I I felt very deeply, even for all of our efforts around vaccine equity, um, making sure that uh, we had an anti-racist approach to uh, our policy and our, you know, our pandemic response. Um, those were the outcomes. And that is, uh, that is suffering that we need to confront and do more about. Um, and so, you know, I know that the health department feels very passionately about this as well. Um, we have to hold ourselves accountable to those outcomes and uh, and keep striving to do better. And lastly, Dr. Dave Chakshi, um, what's one thing we haven't touched on here that you're particularly proud of about your tenure? I know there's there's a variety of things um, I haven't asked you about that are that are initiatives that you worked on, or maybe it's something COVID related. Um, but what's one thing we haven't touched on that, that you're particularly proud of about your tenure as, as New York City Health Commissioner? Well, uh, thanks for that opportunity, Ben. And I will say um, overdose prevention centers is what you know comes to mind. Uh, these are um, you know the first two in the entire nation opened up here in New York City uh, to take on um, the overdose crisis, which uh, if we weren't in a pandemic, you know, this would be the five alarm fire in public health. And we should still treat it as the emergency that it is. Um, and so I'm really proud that we were able to, um, to, to be pioneering in this respect. Uh, and, uh, you know, I hope that it's an example for uh, the entire country. All right. We will leave it there. Do you, oh, do you know what you're doing next? How, do, how can I not ask you that? Do you, where, where will we see you at, on, uh, after March 14th or after a, after a break after March 14th? Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to spending more time with my daughter and my wife, um, you know, taking care of myself. Uh, I'm very deliberately not um, stepping into to something new, uh, in part because I need to replenish, as, as so many New Yorkers do after the, you know, the trauma that we've all been through over the past two years. So, um, so I'm going to do some healing and uh, I didn't expect this role to come to me when it did, so I'll I'll leave it to the universe as to what um, what the next uh, big thing is. All right, we wish you well, uh, all the best. Dr. Dave Chakshi, thanks for uh, taking the time with us and, and of course for your time and uh, service with the city and uh, be well. Thanks so much, Ben, take care.